Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying together Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, we'll go through verse 22. If you're a visitor here, our goal, at least, is to do what we call expositional preaching, which is where we try to find the main idea in a passage and have that be the main idea in the sermon as well, okay? We want the Word of God to do the work of God in you, so... Galatians chapter 3, we've been going through this great letter together, we're almost smack dab in the middle. Beginning in verse 15, Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham By a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We need to pray. So let's do that together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. What a gift to have the Word of God. And we do pray that throughout the rest of our time together this morning, 
as we sit under your word, that you would teach us how to read the Bible correctly so that we can stand fast as a people of the gospel of grace. We need more than me. (laughs) So much more. And we need more than what we are, our own intelligence or whatever, to hear the Word of God as we so desperately need to hear it. So would you yourself come and teach us? In Jesus' name, amen. So, as Christians, as a church, uh, we put a lot of emphasis on reading the Bible. And rightly so. You should read your Bible. But do we read the Bible rightly so? As important as it is that we read the Bible, what about how we read the Bible? Sometimes it feels like we're just thrilled that we have managed to read it at all. (laughs) So small victories, really. Never mind the how. That's, That's something else. The progress, the flow, the big picture, and how it all intersects and interacts and fits together. That's for pastor theologians. It's not for me. I'm just concerned that I read the Bible. But dear ones, listen, at best, that right there is the thinking of spiritual children who, as we see in Galatians, are in danger of being driven into error and deserting the biblical truth. Let's understand, it is possible, it is possible for you to read the Bible your entire life and not really know what the Bible teaches well enough to appreciate and then defend the truth as necessary. Reading the Bible correctly is not just for pastor theologians. It's for you. It's vital that we don't lose the concern of this letter, Galatians. Paul writes to churches, not to pastor theologians, to churches like you. Christians, if you're a Christian, like you, he says this, I am astonished, chapter 1, verse 6, that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to another gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So church, listen. We will be as open to deserting the biblical gospel as we are closed off to the truth that there is an eternal gospel that the whole Bible preaches. See what Paul sees. Because they're deserting 
the sufficiency of Scripture and the storyline of Scripture. They're deserting the one gospel and the one God who called them in the grace of Christ. So how well do you and I know the flow, the movement, the progress, the story, the whole of the Word of God? Do we know it well enough to ward off error? Do we know it well enough to be firm, convictional, steady on the sufficiency of faith in Christ and Him crucified? Let's come to our text. And what Paul argues in verses 15 through 18, how the Bible tells us that God's promises, His saving promises, have always been given to believers in Christ. To get our footing there, I'll remind us how a week ago, from a web of Genesis 12 verse 3, Genesis 15 verse 6, Leviticus 18 verse 5, Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, Deuteronomy 27 verse 26, and Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4c. Paul has argued that Jesus loves and has loved His own and that we can bank on that because after all and above all, the Bible tells us so. It says that God has always saved sinners one way, through faith in Jesus Christ. The law is not eternal. The gospel is. God did not give the law to intercept what He promised to do for the world by the Lord Jesus Christ as if He suddenly couldn't do it changed his mind, and decided he needed our help and cooperation to achieve salvation. Doing the law was never meant to become the sinner's hope and the sinner's trust before God. Remember, the law was not of faith. You remember that from a week ago? It was not of faith. So that despairing of our own doing. We, we might be of faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. And so we're just picking up right there. It's just there that Paul finds that he has some more explaining to do. And so in our verse 15, he gives, he says, a human example. And I'll say, as straightforward as it is, it might seem a little bit outdated to us. In our day, covenant relationships are basically fickle commitments. They are largely self-serving and thus only valid as constituted until self is not served the way that self wants to be served. And then lawyers enter the fray and loopholes are found and out the door we go. But Paul's talking about something more virtuous and solid here. He's talking about a substantial agreement between two or more persons that once it's signed into action or ratified, is the word he uses here, it binds the constituents to the content of that covenant. That's what he's talking about. So, it's like the oath, if you're a big Harry Potter fan, 
It's like the oath that Snape took with Mrs. Malfoy, this unbreakable vow, and it was this weird sort of like, I don't know, lightning thing that like bound their arms together. And basically it means if you break this vow, if you don't take care of my boy, everyone's going to get injured here. We're all going to die. Unbreakable vow. Nothing that comes after that vow is made or that covenant is made can annul or cancel it. And there are no addendums to it. There's a time for that. You want to annul something, cancel something, you want to add something to it, there's a time for that. It's called before it's ratified. So, you better be content with the content of the covenant. You better like what's in it because once it's signed, it's binding and it's unchangeable and Paul's going somewhere. He's arguing from the lesser to the infinitely greater. He's arguing from the world of men to the promises of God. And so verse 16 now, he takes us again to the Word of God. And in doing so, he makes one of the more momentous claims for reading and interpreting the Bible correctly, rightly, properly. And nothing short of the saving grace of the gospel is at stake. He says, the promises were made not just to Abraham. That's where we've been so far. The promises were made not just to Abraham, but also to someone else. To his offspring. And Paul then offers this all-critical interpretation. He identifies that offspring not as many, but as one. And not Isaac as the one, but Christ. And what makes this interpretation hard is that offspring can refer to one, or it can refer to a whole bunch, many. And in the Genesis passages to which Paul's alluding, let me be honest here, you go and read it, it kind of sounds like many. So, Paul mess up? You make a mistake at this point? Is his interpretation more, more than valid? Is it true to the Word of God? And of course as Galatians is the Word of God, we'll give it the benefit of the doubt. The answer is, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Paul got it right. He got it right. So how did Paul get there, and how can we join him there? Promises were made not just to Abraham, but to his offspring. And that offspring is not many, it's not Isaac, it's Christ. We should say again, offspring can refer to one. Can refer to one, as it often does with reference to Isaac. But Paul's engaging in a few other things here. So you ready? That was not convincing. Okay, great. I hope so. Or else we're in trouble. All right, one. 
He's reading offspring in Genesis 12, and Genesis 13, and Genesis 17. Genesis 17. In light of what God promised long before it, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the woman, Eve, would have offspring innumerable, but also one specific offspring out of the many who would crush the serpent. Remember this? He would crush the serpent, he would renew the fallen, he would reverse the curse, and he would save his people from their sins. That's Genesis 3.15. That's not New Testament, that's the very beginning of the Bible. So whenever Paul reads offspring moving forward, even in the sense of an innumerable multitude, Genesis 3.15 is guiding that. It's leading that. It's defining that. From them, even if it's a corporate multitude of people, comes one Christ. Next, Paul does have the benefit of hindsight. Whether you want to call it uh, the promises of God or the blessings of God, or the inheritance of God, which is the first time we've really gotten that here in Galatians, is in our text, the inheritance, right? Whether you want to talk about the new birth, regeneration, adoption into the family of God, justification, the forgiveness of sins, counting righteous by faith in Christ, sanctification, preservation, glorification, okay? Whatever you want to talk about, in the Bible, it's all been vested in one person. One this singular offspring in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And well, Isaac comes along, and he goes. And he doesn't bring this about. And Jacob comes, and he goes. And then Joseph comes, and he goes. And then Judah comes, and he goes. And the promises... Passed down along the way. And then Moses comes and we're like, whoa, Moses. No, he comes and he goes. And then David. Oh, it's got to be David, right? Nope, he comes and he goes. Solomon, greater than David. Comes and he goes. John the Baptist, some thought that he was the Christ. And he comes and he goes. And so on so forth, and not a single one of them could do what Jesus Christ did. Hindsight. Paul has it. But his hindsight, as glorious as it is, is that all that Paul has to drive us in this direction? No, it's not. The Old Testament does exactly the same thing. It keeps Genesis 3.15 front and center so that it widens offspring to so many millions only to narrow it and narrow it and narrow it from the many to the one who is Christ. It's saying that Christ that was promised in Genesis 3, verse 15, is coming from God. And when He comes from God, you need to be looking for Him in the line of 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, on down to the virgin. And as it's doing that in Genesis and 2 Samuel and Isaiah, its entirety, the entirety of the Old Testament is furnishing us as it moves, as it progresses, with a portrait of this incredible person that if we had not seen it in the Lord Jesus Christ, we'd never believe that this person could exist. Praise God, He does. So, Paul's not just bending Genesis 13, 15 to fit the argument that he wants to make here in Galatians. He's reading, listen to this now, he's reading one verse in light of the entire testimony of the Old Testament. He's reading it in line with the unfolding storyline of Scripture, which fronts with and then focuses on the advent of the Christ. And so Paul's reading it as about Christ and as fulfilled in Christ, as Christ Himself taught Paul to read it. And as He means to teach you and me to read it as well. You remember what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 12? I did not receive my gospel from any man, nor was I taught it by any mere man, but I received it, how so? Through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you know that three-fourths of your Bible that we call the Old Testament is about Jesus? It's about Christ. Have you reckoned that the whole Bible, not just one quarter of it, but the whole Bible is Christian Scripture? And do you read it that way? And have we understood how vulnerable we are to deserting the truth of the gospel if we don't? If we are not able? Paul brings the big picture of the Old Testament to bear on a single verse to secure you and me in the all-sufficient grace of of Christ. Are you able to do that for one another? Let's work on it. Okay. So Paul now progresses. He tells us precisely what he means. This is what I mean. In Abraham, God made promises to Christ. As Paul says, elsewhere, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. And God fixed it in the form of a covenant. And the covenant ceremony takes place in Genesis chapter 15, verses 7 
to 21. And the major point is, it's not a man-made covenant. In fact, the only man present had no part in it at all. In fact, we're told that God put Abraham to sleep. What a blessing coming from an insomniac. Sometimes I'm like, Lord, do for me what you did for Abraham. Put me to sleep. So he puts him to sleep so that the responsibility, the responsibility for bringing about the promises that he's made in this covenant were laid not on Abraham in any degree, but completely on God alone. He took it all upon himself to bring it about. While Abraham was heavily snoring, God was unchangeably saying, on my honor and glory as God, I promise to bring about the offspring that leads to the offspring who saves every single person who, like Abraham, believes. Sinner as they are. My grace suffices. My grace will do. And every word then in verse 17 is mighty. The law which came 430 years Read slow, folks. Afterward does not annul a covenant slowly, previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. If that's generally true with man-made covenants, how much more is it true for God's covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. It is a direct shot at the the Judaizing teachers that are distorting the gospel in Galatia and amongst those churches. They're saying, remember, they're saying, the law of Moses is an expansion. The law of Moses is an addition to the covenant that God made With Abraham, yes, believe in Christ, but also you must observe the law. Then, and only then, will you be an heir of the promises of God. What are we talking about there? We're talking about justification, adoption, sonship, the Spirit, all those things that Paul's told us. So you believe in Christ, observe the law, you'll be an heir. They're saying, if faith in Christ was enough, Paul, why did God add the law? Isn't it obvious? You've got to be Jewish, as it were, to be really Christian. And Paul says, Scripture says, you're wrong. That's not right. And that's verse 18. If the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. So where they're saying the two work together to furnish the inheritance, Paul says, no. You want the inheritance? 
The law and the promise are mutually exclusive. They don't have the same function in the saving plan of God. So the second that you and I believe salvation comes by our doing to any measure, we're saying, we're saying God's doing by Jesus Christ is, chapter 2, verse 21, null and void. If justification came by the law, Christ died for no purpose. That's what he said there, right? So, the inheritance comes by law or it comes by promise. It comes by our works or it comes by God's grace. But if it comes by us, again, Jesus died for nothing. But, to put a cap on it, Paul says, the Bible says, God gave it to Abraham because he was so righteous and obedient. No. God gave it to Abraham by a promise that he had nothing to do with. Grace. Dear ones, we're going to see if our obedience to God's law had any part in obtaining redemption, we'd still be accursed slaves of sin always and forever. Why? We saw it a week ago. We do not measure up to what God's law requires of us. And what mercy. It's knowing that that 430 years Prior to adding it, God ratified a covenant of grace to sinners. Upon His being, He promised salvation to faith in Jesus Christ. And the later addition of the law does not in the least change that. The inheritance comes by grace through faith in Christ alone. Which leads us to ask, why then the law? Indeed, why then the law? Friends, it is a fact of Scripture and history that God added the law. But if in the laws being added, it adds nothing, annuls nothing, changes nothing about the way God has always saved people. What's the point of the law? Seems your gospel makes God's law obsolete, Paul. Not at all, he says. It was added to serve faith. To serve faith in that gospel. So, how so? Well, for one... For one, by being principally different than the promise. Or, as Paul put it last week, by being not of faith. It serves faith by being not of faith. These false teachers seem to have taught the Mosaic Law is in continuity with the Abrahamic Covenant. In principle, they're the same thing. 
They hold the same purpose. They're equal partners in the way of salvation. Faith plus works. Grace plus law. Christ plus us equals life. To them, the law was an ongoing part of God's eternal plan to justify His people. And Paul had believed that too. Paul had believed that too. Until the Christ that was promised met him on the road to Damascus and shed his glorious light abroad in that man's heart and helped him to begin to read God's Word as God would have him read it. We need so much help. The distorters wanted to merge the law with the promise as a main actor, a main actor in the drama of redemption. But Paul says it was never meant, the law was never meant to be Tom Cruise or Meryl Streep or whoever it is today. I'm getting older. The law is a supporting actor. It's in the story. But its role is very specific, very limited, and inferior to the promise God made to faith in Christ. The law is the off-brand friend of the star of the show that pops in for a spell only to fade into the background when it's time for the star to shine their brightest in the story. So Paul says, after the way of salvation had been established, after that, the law was added. Three words. Because, until, intermediary. It was added, verse 19, because of transgressions. It was added, verse 19, until the advent of Christ. It was added, verse 19, by way of an intermediary. So friends, the law was not given to supplement our standing with God. It wasn't added to be the basis of obtaining the inheritance. It was not given to have any part in saving sinners. It was given to clarify for us what our sin is and is not. It doesn't allow us to be ignorant. It doesn't allow us to excuse our sins away as, I'm just having a really bad day. It doesn't allow us to excuse sin away as, uh, I don't know, chemical imbalance. My hormones are raging. It doesn't allow us to excuse sin away by, oh, they're so young. It doesn't allow us to excuse sin away by saying, eh, everybody makes mistakes. It doesn't allow us to depersonalize sin. 
as if it had no relationship to God. It does not allow us to grow comfortable Burger Kinging it. You know what that means? No? BK, have it your way. You rule, right? Doesn't allow us to do that. It doesn't allow us to keep a gray space for whatever we think sin might be. Romans chapter 4, verse 15, that Miss Rita read for us in the call to worship is so helpful here. There, in that verse, Paul says, where there is no law, there is no, what's the word? Transgression. He does not mean, where there is no law, there is no sin. What he means is, sin without the law stays unhelpfully undefined. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says he would not have known what it really was to covet unless the law said to him, you shall not covet. And then all of a sudden he was like, man, I'm done for. The law was added to help us see that our sin is transgressive. It's transgression against our good, holy, and righteous Creator. It brings us face to face with the lawmaker. It clarifies and codifies and then counts off our sin and guilt before the one God and judge of all the earth so that not a single one of us have any excuse before Him and we're all accountable. That's what it does. And while the mention of its mediation by Moses and angels and whatnot sounds glorious, it actually only furthers the point that Paul's trying to make here. Contrary to the promise, the law wasn't given by God directly. Do you remember Mount Sinai? Some of you should because you've been in our youth studies on Wednesday. How in the giving of the law, God warns them, don't you dare set a foot on this mountain. Why? Because if you do, you're going to die. Because I'm holy and you're not. I'm God and you're sinners. And how hearing him preach the law, hearing God preach the law there, they began to beg in awful, trembling fear for a mediator. That there says the law is not the same as the promise. Those who received the law confessed when they received it, this is not going to end in our living. <laughs> They're like, we're dead meat. We're done for. Someone's got to go between or we're going to die. But in giving the promise to Abraham, a sinner no less than all that Israel, there was no mediation. That's the force of that enigmatic little bit there in verse 20. Intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. In delivering the law to a nation, 
of sinners. Mediation. In delivering the promise for a world of sinners. No mediation. God just gave it to Abraham directly. Verse 18. So, when you're reading your Bible, you get to places like that and you go, what's happening? What's going on there? You need to learn how to be humble interrogators of the text. What's going on there? The promise and the law are different things. The law was mediated to Israel because it laid obligations on Israel that they as sinners could not and did not achieve. It was a covenant that was conditioned or contingent upon their obedience. That's bad news. That's a broken covenant. But the promise then is something else entirely. God gifted that to Abraham. And Christ in it. And all the saving promises of God in Him. He gifted it to a representative believer, Abraham. The promise, different than the law, was conditioned, was contingent, not on Abraham's obedience, but on God and His character and His grace alone. Where Israel would fail, God will never. And now we're getting somewhere, aren't we? You see, the law was given not as a fail-safe in the event the promise collapsed on itself, but to prove us all failures who cannot save ourselves so that we are pressed to rely on God and His grace alone to be saved. That's the until in our passage. Again, the law is not eternal. It has an expiration date. It was added and then destined to go out at a certain point in time. When was that time? It was when the now risen Christ came into the world to fulfill the law by being perfectly obedient to it, in our stead, so that He could bring the inheritance to us by dying for us on the tree. It was when He ratified the new covenant by His blood. It was when the promises of God in that covenant were bought and paid for. It was when He, the Christ, had done it. Finish the work. And then, the law as a covenant of national identity, but also moral failure and spiritual death was like, praise the Lord, I can be retired. 
and per usual, Paul thinks that needs some additional clarification. If the law is principally different than the promise, is it then contrary to the promises of God? We just answered that, but Paul adds his answer beginning in verse 21. He says, certainly not. In being principally different than the promise, it's actually perpetually directional to it. Please explain, Paul. I already have. But okay, here's a little more. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Meaning, if we were still in Eden and everything was Edenic in our souls, the law would be enough. It would suffice. You know why? Because we would not be spiritually dead and needing God to raise us up again. But that's not the world we live in now once sin entered this one. You see verse 22? The law imprisoned everything under sin. The law is not the problem. What's the problem? Yeah. We are. Sin is. And all the more so when we realize the law simply reflects the all-glorious character of God. That it would be life for us if we weren't so dead. And that being so dead, it unfortunately cannot do for us what only God by Jesus can and will and has. The law, he calls it Scripture in verse 22, being this foreseeing Word of God, now after sin has come into the world, does one directional thing. Again, it imprisons everything under sin. It sets no one free indeed. It's a holy warden, you might say. All it does is find sin, clarify what it is, charge our consciences with guilt, condemn us all and everything in us as being under the power and the guilt and the stain of a sin that we cannot get off. At its best, the law makes us feel what graceless felt in the pilgrim's progress. This burden, this huge burden and weight on our backs that only gets heavier and more irremediable the more that we rely on the law to get it off. The more we lean into the law, the more it leans over us and upon us and crushes us until, by God's mercy, we despair of ourselves.
hearts. Are you despairing yet? Are you despairing still? Or have you been directed by the law to grace that preceded it by 430 years and then on into eternity past? Has it directed you to grace? And have you found God's relief? It was not until graceless, also known in the story as Christian, came to the cross and to the empty tomb that that awful burden on his back rolled away, never to be seen again. And that is the glory here also. The law is different than the promise, but it's not contrary to it. In fact, it serves it by convincing us, if you would live to God, if you would be forgiven of your sins, if you would be counted righteous, if you would be adopted, if you would be brought into the family of God, if you would be an heir of the Holy Spirit, if you would be sanctified, if you would be preserved throughout your Christian life, if you would be ultimately glorified, it will not be by observing Moses. Not just because Moses can't do it for you and you can't do it, but because it's always been, verse 22, by believing in Jesus the Christ. Always. So, to require circumcision and eating crickets, good. Eating pigs, bad. Grasshoppers, good. Camels, not good. And make sure you keep this holy day. And oh yeah, you got to hear the law and you got to do it. You got to abide by it and you got to do it all, all the time. Or whatever we might add to that today. Make sure you, you do your McShane reading Bible plan throughout the course of the year. If you don't do that and keep up with that, you're less of a Christian. You're not as justified as I am. To require all those things in order for someone to be a fully justified, true heir of God, is to absolutely whiff on the gospel that the Bible preaches to us. Paul's arguing, if you or I, dear ones, bring anything other than God's work in Christ into the equation of our salvation, we're reading and applying the Bible wrongly. The promise preceding the law was made to Christ precisely that it would be given not to those who do or think they can do, but to those who knowing they can't and have not simply believe in Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news That friend, sinner as you are, failed as you are, cursed as you are, imprisoned as you are, 
You have only to believe in Jesus, the Christ who was crucified, and God will, on His own being and promise, save you. All His promises will be yours. What amazing grace. Let that grace teach your heart right now to fear. And then, let it also, your fears, absolutely relieve by leading you to Jesus. And church, let's never desert that gospel. Let's know our Bibles so very well. For as we know our Bibles so very well, the truth of the gospel will never fade from view and will stick with Him. We'll stick with Him and walk with Him and lean on Him who called us in the grace of Christ. I'm really glad that you read your Bible. Just here this morning, that how you read it, is just as pivotal for a people of the gospel. It's just as pivotal for a people of Christ. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we thank you so much again for your word. There are hard things in it, as Peter once said about Paul's writings. <laughs> but you are able, you are able to help our hearts, not just to understand, but simply to believe. So help us to do that to our joy and our relief and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.